As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Miami Nice. I am one half of your modern man campfire, Blake Howard. My undercover partner, Katie Walsh, is with me as always. Hello, Blake. I'm so excited for our conversation today. Yeah, look, you guys have already probably seen this in your podcasting apps firing up this episode, but this is another Collateral Confessions where we're talking all things Collateral. We did one with the great Amy Nicholson, who is a scholar of Tom Cruise, but now... We have the guy. We have the guy who originated this story, who wrote it, who had it in a drawer for many years, who watched it be developed. A fellow Aussie, which is freaking exciting for me uh, to talk to. The great Stuart Beattie is on the line with us. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us on uh, this little Collateral Confessions. It's a joy to talk to you. I can see a Collateral poster in the background of your office right now up with Interceptor and Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's very cool to talk to you about this great film. So we really just want to dive in and say, tell us absolutely everything. Where did this movie start? And uh, Katie, you found a bit in your research that this started when Stuart was 17 years old. Is that right? Can you validate that for us, Stuart? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, look, hi. Hi, Blake. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so Collateral was really the, the first idea I ever had for a movie. Um, I was 17. I was uh, it was the first time I'd ever caught a cab by myself, like without my family. So I found myself in the back of a cab from Sydney airport back to my home, uh, in Warunga and, uh, about a 40 minute drive. And I just started chatting with the cabbie and, uh, he was a funny bloke. And, uh, so we were just having a good old laugh, you know, for 40 minutes, uh, as he drove me home. And then after I got out of the cab, uh, I, you know, kind of realized, wow, I could have been some, you know, crazy killer sitting back here this whole time. And you would have had no idea, uh, you know, who I was. We're complete strangers. And yet we're talking like we're best mates. I mean, known each other for 40 minutes. 
So it just was one of those thick, twisted ideas that came to me <laughs> as a result of just growing up um, and doing things for myself for the first time. And, uh, you know, I'd always been taught, uh, you know, never get into a, a car with a stranger. And if you're driving, never pick up a hitchhiker. Uh, but, you know, th th those two things are basically the essence of cabs and now Uber uh, and Lyft, which, you know, terrifies me still to this day that it's just multiplied <laughs> and there's no licensing anymore. You know, not even that. So, uh, yeah, they, it just, they, it just, they do give you some gum occasionally <laughs> offer to charge your phone. Maybe there's a water for a five star, but no, it is inherently, it is inherently creepy. Like especially... it is. it's funny. I was reading one of your quotes about how you thought of this idea. And I actually remember one of the first times I took a cab by myself. I think I was in college and I was in New York city. I think I was like going from the airport to somewhere else. But my reaction was like, oh, this person could be a psycho killer. Yeah. I'm not, I was like, this person could just drive me anywhere they want to drive me. And like, I don't know what that, I mean, I maybe I was thinking of the Robert De Niro taxi driver version, but yeah, there's a lot of, um, it, I, I like that you drew out that, that inherent, we have to trust each other in this environment kind of idea. But yeah, so I related very much to that. And maybe it's this movie, Stuart, but I recently got a cab. I was in New York coming back home to Oz and I was getting a cab to the airport and the guy who was driving me, I was like, I literally texted my wife. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the airport. I just don't know. Like this guy is a like, he wasn't just a lunatic talking to him. He was a lunatic driver. And I was like, oh, yeah. he was, he was like Colin McRae rally driver extraordinaire trying to get me to this airport. And I was like, okay, this could be it. I don't, I don't know where we're going. I don't know if he knows where he's going. Yeah crazy fascinating isn't it i mean we're all so scared of the other and and the wary of strangers and yet every day millions of people all over the world trust each other implicitly uh in cabs and ubers and lifts everywhere and uh yeah it's, it's kind of scary if you think about it i think you nailed it that's exactly you've just taken something that we all take for granted and given us a nightmare scenario i think scorsese obviously did it on the inversion and your one was like, there is also the strange implicit trust of the driver. You have to, you kind of have to go out there with this positive outlook. You know, you have to go out there every day and go, we're, we're in this nice little trusted environment. Everything's going to be okay. And I can trust you with my life. <laughs> I can trust you with my life sort of, because, you know, I even get annoyed when my kids are playing too loudly in the back of my car. Like imagine <laughs> a psychopath that's just sitting in the back there, like prodding you for information, um, all that sort of stuff. That's, that's so great. So 17, you grew up in Sydney, Warunga, I know it. So you're, you're around this area. When do you go pen to paper? Is it start as a short story? Like how, how did that manifest for you? Cause I know in Oz, you know, maybe, Maybe it's just me, but especially around, you know, um, your age, our age, it's like, you kind of go, well, how, how do I write a screenplay? How do, how do I, how does it start for you? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's like late eighties, early nineties era. So basically one film school in the entire country, uh, at that point and certainly no access to scripts or screenplays. So, um, I really just sat down and I wrote a two page, uh, prose story, uh, and that was called theme. Uh, and it was a cabbie in New York 
picks up a hitman and the hitman kidnaps him and takes him around New York and they make five kills in the night and uh, the cabbie ends up killing the hitman. Uh, so the movie, basically, in, in its broadest, broadest terms, um, but much different uh, in, in every other way. Um, and I and I wrote that down. That was really the first thing I did. And then I uh, took it uh, to the only person I knew who was somehow tangentially involved in the film industry. It was the father of a friend of mine from high school. And uh, he worked for a distribution company called Hoyt uh, down in Australia, which would distribute uh, big studio films. And he always used to get me into movies when they were uh you know before they came out and so I, I knew him pretty well and i went into his office and i pitched the movie to him and he listened to the whole thing about 45 minutes and at the end of it he's like well that sounds great but you know I, i'm in distribution i didn't buy things <laughs> thank you so much for listening and i, and I left and uh, that was it so it just kind of uh kind of stuck in my pocket until i was able to finally get books on how to write screenplays, you know, um, and that really happened in my first year of college. Uh, and then my, my, my second year of college, I actually did an exchange program to Oregon State University. And there I was able to finally get my hands on actual screenplays uh, and more books. And, and that's really where I, I first wrote it. Uh, was in, uh, well, I guess I did, I guess I did the first draft way back in, in Bathurst in 1990 at Charles State University. Um, I'm probably a dot matrix printer back then or something. Um, but I, I really, really wrote what became, it was then called The Last Domino. Um, the idea being that, you know, when, when you're tipping dominoes, uh, you know, they all fall over until the very last one that doesn't, doesn't fall. That's the idea that Hitman was knocking off dominoes all night and the caddy was the last domino that wouldn't fall. So very, very intellectual title. <laughs> So, uh, so yes, when I, I wrote it really there, um, uh, 91, 92, uh, and uh, just kind of kept refining it over the years, you know, um, didn't know anyone. Uh, I moved to LA when I, at the end of 92 to finish my degree. Um, and it was just, it was one of those scripts that I would give to people and, you know, they would say, oh, I really like this, but, you know, nothing would ever happen with it. And it went on that way for a few years. Uh, and then I did uh, a class, a screenwriting class at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. It was a night class. Uh, so they had this program called uh, UCLA Extension. So night classes taught, taught by working professionals who work in the day and teach at night. And it was uh, a great way for me to learn because I could work in the day uh, at Taco Bell and then go to the screenwriting classes at night. And um, one of the students that I met in that class, I just became friends with. And um, uh, about a year or so after that class ended, I was waiting tables at a restaurant. And uh, this friend happened to walk into my restaurant um, where I was working. And so I went over to her and said, hey, how you doing? You know, we kind of caught up. And she was like, you know, she was like, so I'm, I'm you know, I'm producing now. And uh, my boyfriend has uh, got a deal at HBO to make small, low-budget Friday night thrillers. Uh, you know, do you have any ideas that might fit that mold? And I was like, yeah, I've got this one about a cabbie and a hitman. So I pitched her collateral in the restaurant, and she was like, oh, I love that. That sounds great. Let me ask my boyfriend. So the boyfriend turned out to be Frank Darabont, who was a, <laughs> a hero of mine, wrote Shawshank Redemption and the original Frankenstein, which is so good, and so many others. Um, 
so Frank had this deal at HBO, and so he really liked the pitch. We took it to HBO, pitched it to them, and I really wrote the first draft of what we then called Collateral uh, there for HBO. We wrote it as a TV movie and did one draft for HBO, and they were like, no, nah, we don't like it, and they put it in turnaround. Uh, so that means basically they decided not to make it, uh, but they would not get in the way of us trying to set it up somewhere else. So at that point, the project was completely dead. And uh, I thought if anyone can understand this this script, if anyone can get this, it's going to be Steven Spielberg. Because, you know, I grew up on Raiders and, you know, uh, E.T. And, and all his incredible films. And Steven uh, had a studio called DreamWorks. Um, at the time. So I bugged my agent. I said, I just want a meeting at DreamWorks. Please just let me meet anyone, the lowest junior. <laughs> please get me a meeting at DreamWorks. And so my agent called up the lowest <laughs> junior executive at DreamWorks and begged, begged for a meeting. And, uh, that, that executive finally said yes and then canceled and then said yes again and canceled. <laughs> I, I kept rescheduled, rescheduled. So basically, like I, on the fourth time, I finally went in there, and uh, he was like, uh, "What do you got?" And I was like, "I've got this script about the tip man and the cabbie." And he's like, "Fine, I'll read it." And he read it that night. Uh, he gave it to the rest of the studio to read that weekend, and by Monday, we had a deal um, at DreamWorks to, to make Collateral. So, what's the time period between your first draft and the DreamWorks deal? Um, I would say. Probably eight years. Yeah, because okay. wow. pretty first wrote it in 91 at Oregon State. Um, this was 99. So but I just love the story because it's just a story of perseverance and also like shooting your shot in a at, lot of different ways. Oh my God. Like, you know who needs to see this? Uh, after Darabont, who is a legend, a legend. <laughs> You're right? like, next stop, Spielberg. <laughs> Spielberg. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you may as well, right? If you're going to go for it, you may as well Man. go to the You may death. as well. Nah, I may... love that. I That's... love that. Love it. I love that. I love that. But it's, energy. I mean, but it's also like it's starting with your dad's friend who's like listens to you for 40 minutes and is like, I'm in distribution actually. And, but you're, I mean, were you a teenager? Like, I cannot imagine the sort of gumption it would take to pitch an adult man your screenplay. Yeah. Your idea, your idea. I yeah, love it. You. I, I, I applaud. Thank you. Yeah, look, it was, it was really more a case of I, I didn't know what else I was going to do with my life. But, you know, I, I just, I really wanted to do this. And so it was like, you know, Cortez burning the ship. It was just, <laughs> I got to go for it. And so that was kind of my mentality. And of course, once I was over here, I was on a five-year student visa. Uh, so I had a ticking time clock on me for that. So I had to make money or get get a visa some other way um so it wasn't like i could just stay in la forever if i wanted so i, I really had a lot of time a lot of pressures on me so i think that drove me a lot you know, the best advice i ever got given was if you're not getting arrested you're not breaking down enough doors <laughs> <laughs> i've that, never heard that <laughs> that's such a good but also this is what i want to say Stuart, because like in oz that's the thing even you know you're a little bit older than me but i remember also going like one of the first people that ever said they wanted to maybe be involved in films was my brother. And he was like, I want to maybe get into producing. Cause he was, he'd learned about it. And I was like, where did you learn this? You know, when he first started talking about it, he's a, a few years older than me. 
And I remember going like, what, how, how, how do we do this? Like, what, what is this? And as you said, the, you know, Australian film, television, uh, television and radio school, you know, like you've got afters here in Sydney and, but you just, I just never knew that, oh, this is something you can do. Like it didn't make sense. So the fact that you at your age are like, I'm going to pitch. And I imagine someone in distribution, they're just like, you know, they're ultimately they're like warehouse people, very good at operations and scheduling and stuff. They could have worked in a, a department store as much as they worked in cinema, really glorified uh, distribution people. And it's like, I would just um, love to imagine he's in his head like, wow, like 10 years later, like Stuart's off making movies, like huge movies, like Pirates of the Caribbean takes the, over the globe and collaterals here with Tom Cruise. This kid pitched me this movie in my office uh, and I couldn't find yeah. it right here. Uh, yeah, look, uh, I, I, um, for me, it was, uh, it was Ghostbusters. Uh, I was 14 and it was one of the films that, my friend's father had asked, had invited me to come see, like alone in a theater, as they were testing the film before it came out. Um, and it was really because he had invited me to see the film, and I loved the film, of course. Um, but I, I normally I would get up as soon as the film ended and I'd walk out. But because he had invited me to see it, I felt, um, you know, that would be rude. So I just I sat while the credits rolled, uh, and I was going to wait till the credits finished before I left. But as I was watching the credits, I was like. Who are all these people? <laughs> and he said, well, that's the film. And that's when it clicked for me. Oh, that's a job. That's something you can actually do. So that, that was uh, a big moment for me. And from that moment on, I was, you know, that's what I wanted to do. So uh, pitching him, yeah, three, three or four years later was uh, felt natural. So I love that, like a polite urge to sit through this event is like literally what sent you on your career path. Yeah, good manners, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's like, what's the key to success? It's like good manners, perseverance, your shots, perseverance, and just, I mean, even when you see your friend in the restaurant, you're like, hey, yeah, I've got a, I've got a I've got screenplay a for you. Someone's and it's like, also having me. something in your pocket to. <laughs> I just love someone yeah. going, excuse me, sir. Um, I ordered and you're like, wait, 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 I'm just, <laughs> I'm just delivering this pitch. It's a fire pitch. Um, right. And in that was a lack of humility because it was like, um, you know, uh, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't seen her in a year or two, and it, and you know, I was like, uh, do I go up to her and say hi? Hey, I'm waiting tables. You know, <laughs> nothing's happened to me. You know, or do I just avoid her? And you know, and so I was like, nah, suck it up. What do you got to lose? And so I was like, yeah, hey, I'm still waiting tables. You know, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I say, that that pitch literally got me out of waiting tables. So then, then it was, um, I mean, that was just the beginning of the journey, really, because then um, at DreamWorks, um, I ended up doing about six months of notes on it uh, from uh, Walter Parks and Laura McDonald, who were running DreamWorks at the time. And uh, once that was done, then the script, uh, just they, they started sending it out to directors and actors, and that's when it just sat and, and took forever. So it was another three-year journey of every director and actor combination you could imagine coming off, coming on and, you know, Hey, we're on, no, uh, we're off and we're on, you know, and, and just uh, all sorts of people, wonderful people uh, and wonderful different versions of what that film could have been. And it was during that time um, that people, executives just started sending that script around town uh, saying, Hey, this is really good dream work. We're trying to make this, but it's really good writing sample. And so I ended up getting a lot of work, 
from that script. So I got the pirate's job from that script. I got derailed from that script. I got three tender humor from that, 30 days of night from that. Um, you know, that, that script did me so much good before the film ever got made. Uh, that at the point that when it finally did got made, I was kind of in a position, well, you know, if they wreck the film, at least most people know the script is good. <laughs> so, so, uh, it, it had really done wonders for me as, as just a writing sample and, and got me work steadily from the moment that I, that I sold that script before, because it took four more years for the film to come out, five more years for the film to come out after I sold it to Dreamworks which was the second time I'd sold it. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. incredible that you got that many jobs off of it, like, and right. high-profile jobs, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, people just really liked that script, and um, they liked the writing, and so, yeah, they just kept hiring me on it. So it was, uh, it was, it was wonderful, wonderful gift that kept on giving, and still keeps on giving to this day. I still get jobs from Collateral and meetings. And, that, and yeah, people, people now, because it's been 20 years later, so, you know, people that sort of teenagers are now executives of movie companies and, you know, want to work with me just for that film alone, you know. Uh, so it just be the gift that keeps on giving. So we had a conversation with Justin Lieberman, who's now a filmmaker himself, but was an assistant at the Forward Pass offices. Um, and, oh. uh, and he told us like a great, a bevy of people who came and visited while it was a forward pass production for Michael Mann, like coming in and going, who's going to be the cabbie, you know, the, the, I guess the, the highlight one for us was Adam Sandler, um, coming in at the time for that. And I'd love if you like, I, I, and I, I don't, um, I don't want you to be talking out of school. So I'm happy for you to absolutely just say, no, I, I don't, I'm not comfortable sharing, but I'd love to know, like who were some of the director actor pairings in that run of like four or five years before it landed, in Michael Mann's office, because I'm obviously we're going to talk a lot about Michael Mann and Tom Cruise and Jamie and yourself and, and how the film materialized, but were there any like weird and wonderful combinations of directors and actors that you could share with us that you remember, like any that stick in your mind from that time when it was in development? Um, yeah, there are a lot. I gotta go to remember them all now. Um, but, uh, Joel Schumacher, uh, I thought it was a really interesting choice. Katie's guys, one of Katie's guys for sure. Wow. I love him. <laughs> Set to make it. Uh, I don't honestly know why he didn't. You, you never, you never know. You never know the real reason. You know why people come on and come off. But uh, yeah, yeah. Joel was on for a while. Mimi Leader, um, she was on it for a while. Um, oh God, I have to go back. Uh, I have to go back. Jeez, Twenty years. I saw. <laughs> I saw on Wikipedia that two of the, and maybe this is true or not true, but that. Um, Two of the directors were either Janusz Kaminski yep. and, Sorry. and Fernando Moraes, who made um, City of God. Wow. Uh, so that that. Janusz was obviously friends with Stephen because uh, he'd shot all Stephen's films and uh, he wanted to make his own film. So, yeah, Stephen gave him collateral for, for a while there. Again, I don't know what happened. I can't remember. Um, I, I do remember that right before Michael came on, it was. They, they, I, my agent had told me and said, look, um, because they seem to be having so much trouble getting it made, they're starting to now wonder, oh, is this the right version of this film? And so they were considering hiring some comedy writers to come in and rewrite the script and make it as a wacky kind of Jack Black comedy. Um, no. So, yes, at that point, I rewrote the script on my own uh, 
as like a you know five million dollar movie like really stripped it down to its bare essentials and 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 said look let let me go make it let me let me go give me five million dollars two guys in a taxi cab and i'll go you know shoot this uh, as a kind of a low budget film and um right at that point was when russell crowe uh had a film that fell through and that's what changed everything so russell gets it and then that's when it jumps into the hands of michael mann or he takes it to Michael yeah. Mann. Yeah, he takes it to Michael Mann, yeah. So um, they had obviously done a film called The Insider uh, together, and um, Russ is a big fan of Michael's, and so Michael read it. Michael was looking to make a city-based thriller, and he was like, well, I, I'd want it to be in L.A. because you know, he loves L.A. So we moved it to L.A. Uh, Russell's on, um, and now we're just looking for the cabbie. Uh, and so that's when Michael went to Jamie, um, who we'd done Ali with, uh, and Jamie campaigned pretty hard for it because uh, until that point he was mainly a comedian. You know, he had Ray in, in, in the wings, uh, but he hadn't done much uh, drama outside of Ali. Um, but then the schedule that, that Michael came up with basically ran too long for Russell, who was about to have a baby uh, back in Australia. And so, uh, you know, the baby was due on like, I don't know, like 15th of December, and, you know, Michael had said, oh, we're going to end on the 14th of December, you know, you, and, you, and Russell's like, you know, you don't forget I've made a film with you already, and I know that. <laughs> Over. Uh, so he pulled out, and to 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 Russell's credit, it, uh, Michael, I think, finished shooting in, like, late January. So, yeah, he would have missed the birth. <laughs> Russell's like, I would like to maintain my relationship. <laughs> well, um, well, we've we've just recently had a chat with I had a chat with Jim Belushi Stewart after the passing of James Khan to talk through Thief, and there's an amazing story. He actually told it on the Tonight Show, where he made James Belushi defer a wedding because they had a part of Chicago that opened up during the shooting of Thief. He said, "Can you just do your wedding next week?" and called. Jim's wife Sandy at the time and asked her and said, "Yeah, you're working Saturday." And they changed the wedding so that they could do it. So you know, that's my, Michael's. Michael wants to make the movie. I think in any conditions, um, and life's going to happen around the movie. He's pretty content with that as long as it doesn't happen for the movie. Yeah, and look, I think it's like any any industry, but you know, Hollywood certainly does not care about your personal life, and if you're going to have a successful personal life, you're the only person that's going to set boundaries. And yeah. um, like she told me a story very early in his career, uh, these agents wanted him to fly over to LA at uh, Christmas time for a meeting on Christmas Eve. And he's like, but then I'll miss Christmas. And they're like, well, it's your career, you know? And uh, he's like, uh, are you going to miss Christmas with your family? And they're like, no. He's like, well, I'm not missing mine. And he didn't go. And he had a career just fine, you know, yeah. without. So it really is, it's all, it's all just, you know, kind of smoke and mirrors and, and things they throw at you. If, if, if you let them destroy your personal life, they absolutely will. And, and not have any malice or anything like that. It's just they're greedy and like people want what they want. And, you know, like I said, you, you've got to put up your own boundaries. And that's, that's really the, 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 the big lesson I've learned in this industry is, uh, and I've had a, you know, successful marriage for 26 years and raised two boys who are not in jail and not on drugs. So <laughs> absolutely, um, doable you just you but you have to be the one to set your boundaries and say no my family is the most important thing in the world uh and then you know 
everyone can enjoy. Mm -hmm. And also, Collateral is not a comedy. Yes. <laughs> it's got funny moments. It does it is, have funny it moments. It is very funny in times, but it's not, it doesn't, I think the funniness comes from the tension and it's a suspense thriller. Like it's the, you know, suspense, you can make comedy suspenseful and the relief is some weird comedic moments. Like, Oh my God, you killed him. No, no, no. I didn't kill him. The bullets in the fall killed him. That is hilarious. That is a great line delivered to perfection. You don't need like, it would have been Stuba. Like is basically what it would have right. been, you know, like not yes. like where there is, that's a whole like, cab kind of or uber weird thing comedy that came out it's um but yeah so that's wonderful but i have to ask so in this whole development process though russell crowe is vincent like there's no big change on him he is going to be i think russell crowe absolutely could have done that part easily oh my god yeah he uh he also told me one day he's like i would have gone deep on that one yeah uh, yeah how deep he's like we'll never know <laughs> <laughs> But that's, a, I mean, it's a great, it's a great part, but he, um, he's got Russell Crowe for everyone who like, he's a fan of him. He's got, and if you've ever seen him talk or on a chat show or anything, very, like it does, he's a very funny, gregarious yeah. uh, guy. And so you can totally see him like being able to do that very naturally, but he also is ferocious. And so you, you've seen that in his performances too. So I, that's a really great sliding doors moment. Um, and awesome for Russell because he obviously came home to Oz and had his babies and he's got his, he's well, great. What was even more weird about it was, so in, uh, Tom Cruise obviously ended up coming on to do it instead. Um, and then a few years later when I was writing uh, Three Cent of Humor for Jim Mangold, um, you know, and, and Jim had hired me again because of Collateral because it was essentially the same story as Collateral in that it was a good guy and bad guy stuck together on the road. You know, only the good guy had the gun on the bad guy in this case. And the villain in that was an outlaw named Ben Wade. And uh, Tom was originally cast to play Ben Wade uh, in that. And uh, they had, uh, they were way deep down the line before Tom finally dropped out and then Russell ended up playing that, that villain. <laughs> so they, they kind of switched uh, in, in, in both those films. Um, but they're both my villains. Yeah. <laughs> I got a prisoner to go to Yuma! Well, you did it, Dan. He's one tough son of a bitch. Yeah. 
both great. I, I love great. 310 to Yuma. I love it. Yeah. Good movie. I actually, I my first job was at Lionsgate in the PR department, and I worked on I worked on 310 to Yuma. So I remember that campaign. Oh, very cool. Yeah. 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 I was in the New York office, so I wasn't in LA, but um, yeah, the, I, I have such a fond memories of, of that movie coming out. So. Yeah, so at least, at least I, I got to see Russell play a villain that I'd written. Uh, you know, <laughs> that was pretty pretty good. <laughs> but and Tom, he's... I mean, look, obviously, you can't imagine it without him, you know? Yeah. Oh, I was I was just I was just gonna say Russell is great. Firstly, in three ten to human, and yeah, now now that it's Tom Cruise, it's people. Uh, that's the signpost in his career where. For a lot of folk, they're like, oh, this is his villain. Like, it's his actual villain character. So now it's really important. And for us, obviously, we're massive Michael Mann heads, but we love Tom Cruise in this movie too. He's just, he's so, he's so, those two guys, and this is what I would love to hear your opinion of. So you, now Russell drops out, Tom Cruise comes in. It's a Michael Mann joint with these guys. Can you tell us, like, once it's starting to get started, does that change the dynamic? Because... They're both Cruz and Man are so committed as actor, director, producers. Like they're just so in it. And I, this is the, my one dream. I could have been a fly on the wall with those guys working on this character because I just can't imagine how amazing it would have been them. Like the levels of detail that they would have gone to get it exactly right and to do your you know, do your script and the character justice. Yeah, yeah. So look, once that happened, then it started to actually be real uh, and 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 going. So um, I remember I sat down with Michael and and he's like, you know, I, I've tried, you know, changing things in your screenplay, but every time I change something, something else falls apart, you know, because um, of the way it's constructed. And I was like, yes, um, you know, <laughs> please do that. Uh, and uh, so you know, to his credit, he he just shot the script, you know. So it was. There was very little work that I ended up doing on it. Um, once Tom came on, and uh, uh, really after I finished, uh, so it was uh, it was just watching them work, you know, and they you know all the things that Michael does. Like he had Tom dress up as a FedEx guy to deliver packages, just to see if he could deliver packages without anyone recognizing that it's Tom Cruise, you know, just as a way to kind of get in the mindset of Vincent, uh, kind of you know, sifting through a crowd without anyone noticing him, you know, just, just, just that kind of stuff, you know, beyond all the, obviously the gun tactical training and all, all that kind of stuff, which is a given, uh, just, just really cool little exercises like that. So Michael Mann didn't do a lot of rewrites on your script. Uh, no, no, it was a script, scripty shot. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it was, you know, the whole, uh, Javier Bardem character. I mean, it, when it was, when I'd written it initially in, um, in New York, uh, that character was a Russian gangster, uh, which just didn't work as well in L LA. So the whole Piedro Negro uh, uh, myth is actually a Russian myth called Black Peter. So <laughs> he did, but we still kept it, you know, uh, just made it Piedro Negro instead. And just, you know, I think uh, actually, it. I've like looked that up. I think it actually is like something in Latin America as well. So it works. That's where it came from. It came from a Russian fairy tale. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's in The Witch. It's in uh, Eggers is The Witch, Black Peter as well. Yeah, yeah. So basically, yeah, he, he takes all the bad kids. Yeah. 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 
leaves all the all the wooden switches behind. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's so interesting because like transplanting this thing from New York to LA, obviously like, you know, in a really rote way, it's like just a location change. But I feel like collateral and maybe it's I don't know, maybe it's because you're from Sydney. Like Sydney is a sprawl. New York is really connected. Like even where you were talking about the suburb where you grew up, Runga, that is 40 minutes out of Sydney. And if you come where I live in southwestern Sydney, you know, Pads, Padstow, you know, Reesby, Hurstville area, you come down that area, that's still another 40 minutes out of Sydney. Like it's this, it, it is a sprawl. And so it feels like the whole construction of LA um, works so much for the cab because you get the time and not stuck in traffic it's this kinetic movement all the time from one spot to the next it feels like the sprawl as soon as it happens it feels like i don't know it just makes sense and i don't i wonder if you uh in your original concepts of it maybe we're like channeling sydney you know like that like uh, new york is not as far away as you think or well, some parts are like when you go out to brooklyn and whatever but manhattan itself is like very tight like it, it's always like two minute cab rides five minute cab rides not like into the airport, maybe 40 minutes or whatever the case may be. But it feels like it, as soon as you say LA, it's like, oh, it makes sense that he's using a cab. It's the only yeah, right. of transformation, transportation yeah. that can do this. Right. Um, and that worked. Um, but, it, it, you know, when it was in New York, they were going out to Queens and Brooklyn and, uh, you know, it wasn't just me. Yeah. They were all around. Um, but yeah, it, it was, to me, it was just, it was, it was because it was all about the value of human life in a big city. That's, that's really what was important to me, just that it was set in a big city. It was, it was not a story that could work in a small town. Because no. in a small town, the value of human life is inherently different. You know, one person dies in a small town and the whole town shuts down. You have a funeral, everyone goes and everyone, you know, celebrates the life of that person. But, you know, big city, you know, 30 people die every day, you know, and you don't even notice. And it's just, I, I remember like, um, they used to do fatality accident reports on the, on the, in the morning traffic report, fatality accident, 405, traffic's backed up, so da, 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 take the ball, da, 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 you know, and it was, and I remember thinking one day, wow, fatality accident, that means someone just died pretty horrifically. And the only news it's making is it's going to make me late to work, you know, <laughs> uh, just, it just shows you the inherent uh, lack of value of human life. Um, in in big cities you know and then you know they also mentioned the rwandan genocide which is something i had done a lot of work on and just horrified by what happened there you know uh but again it's all about the lack of value of human life you know how we you know tree falls in the forest there's anyone here right so it's that same thing that that lone tree up on the hill that's been there for 100 years that goes down everyone knows about it so uh that that's really what i was writing for so new york la chicago um, you know, San Fran, you know, it could go in Miami. It could really be set anywhere. Um, it, it's really just about a place where there are a lot of people. I mean, the story about the guy dying on the MTA was actually the New York subway. You know, that was a real story. Um, and again, just because there are so many people that no one noticed that this guy was dead, you know, for three days. Just smell, you know, eventually someone checked him. But that doesn't happen in a small town. No. Yeah. I mean, I think it's such a, I think that's one thing that kind of, I mean, obviously it's this really tight thriller. There's a lot of great characters, all of this mystery to unfold, but the fact that you are in this cab and they are having these existential discussions about human life and identity and 
kind of grappling with like the bleakness of urban living. You don't get that that often in big movies like this. And so it's, I think that is one thing that keeps me coming back to this movie just over and over again, just the, the conversations that they are having about deep topics. And, and I've had those conversations in lifts and in cabs and stuff with people. And, and you're like, wow, we're really connecting and having like a great conversation and I'm never going to see you again. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's that idea that, you know, uh, Max as an every man uh, has his, you know, beliefs, which turn out to be bullshit, really, you know, his belief that he cares about human life, really. And along comes someone who says, no, you don't care about human life at all. And that challenges him to actually really care about human life, which is what leads to that whole third act when he goes to save this woman that doesn't even know. Um, because by the end of the story, the, you know, the villain basically pointed out the flaw in his character and made him want to be a better person. So, you know, the villain kind of creating the Frankenstein monster to, um, and eventually stops the villain. You know, it was always a really like intriguing idea to me. One of my mm-hmm. favorite lines in your script, Stuart, it's, and it ki- gets me every time I watch this movie, and it's to that point, is early on, he goes, oh, this is just a part-time thing for me. This is just a part-time job for me. And you can tell that he's had 10,000 conversations where the person in the back has never done a follow-up question. And Vincent goes, how long have you been driving a cab? He goes, oh, 13 years. Because you prefer a nice cab? Yeah, people are more relaxed, less stress, less traffic, better tips. How are the benefits? Oh no, it's not that kind of job. I'm not in this for the long haul. Just fiddling in, you know, it's temporary while I'm getting some things shaped up. This is just temporary. How long have you been driving? 12 years. Really? Mm-hmm. What are the things you're putting together? Um, you know, I don't want to talk about it. It's a little business plan. No offense. I'll take it. You're one of these guys that do instead of talk. That's cool. And you see Cruz's great like reaction, like double, almost like a double take. He goes, really? And in that moment, he doesn't utilize that information for the, you know, the barbs that he starts hauling at Max throughout their, you know, more heated, you know, exchanges in the movie. But I just never will get over that because like, he's not expecting a follow-up. And that's sad because he's the guy in the front who people unload on and he kind of helps them as a conversation lubricant to be like helping them get what is ever out on their ch- off their chest. But the fact that someone followed up and actually asked the follow-up question instead of just assuming that, oh, this is the best possible outcome for this guy, Vincent's not, Vincent's a pessimist. So he's just like, how long have you been driving a cab? <laughs> like, if you're only doing this part-time, how long are you driving the cab? And he's like, six months. Vincent would have gone, okay and just gone on about his business. But 13 years, he's like, I just love that cruise reaction shot and to that line. It's it's so great. And the idea is, of course, that Max at that point doesn't value his own life. Yes. So he's willing to spend 12 years on a part-time thing because um, he, he doesn't value those years himself and he's got to learn, no, I, I got I to gotta get going if I want to make something on my, my own life, you know? You can sit and wait for the, your ship to come in, or you can take your ship to shore. And that's, what, that's really what Vincent teaches him over the course of the night. 
I also love the um, the very first ride we see Max doing with uh, Debbie Mazar. Can you tell me why everything is always about Everything is not always about me. That gear with his pocket protector was being sarcastic and you sarcastic. damn well know it. You know what, I'm sorry, I just didn't see it. Oh, that's bullshit. What about the dig of a makeover? That was really What do you want me to do? I work with the man for Christ's sake and you know what? You're perfectly capable of taking care of your own shit. Know something? The last time I checked, you were sleeping with me. So unless you want to start fucking I think it's an important contrast to the other rides that he that he does because I think a lot of times people can jump into a cab or an Uber and they're not even cognizant that a human being is sitting in the front seat. You know, some people don't even try to make conversation. Or, you know, everyone's always tweeting, like, I don't want to talk to my Uber driver. I'm the person who's like, I want to talk to my <laughs> Uber driver. But um, but the way that they're having that, you know, they're having what's a private argument and kind of not even realizing that another human being is like witnessing what's going on between them. And, and she's it's like, and she's mode of transportation. A, she's using a lipstick in the mirror, which is even funnier because she's leaning closer to Max and ripping into the guy next to her. Like she's going off and he's just like, oh, this is super awkward. <laughs> I, 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 that's, that is so great. But yeah, so it's like you have this, these people who are completely ignoring him. Then he has, you know, the ride with Annie, which is this like kind of beautiful connection, conversation, shared moment. And then he has Vincent, which is... <laughs> You know, but it's just this great little like lead up of like what what could be what who could get into your cab and how you might be treated differently every single time. Yeah, yeah, and I think the, the I mean Debbie was so great in that, but that that was really about showing the the typical person that comes yes. in that doesn't even notice you. You know, so wrapped up in their drama and their world, that's the most important thing. Yeah, and, and they treat you like you're part of the furniture. You're not yeah. even there. Yeah, uh, actually in his mirror using yes. his boyfriend yeah <laughs> even there like he's a robot um and then along comes the next person who actually takes an interest in him and it's, that's why you, you know something different it's something that he remembers right i want i'm curious like the, all of these themes that we're talking about they're so deep and like mature and I'm still thinking about you being 17, <laughs> yeah. but I'm sure the drafts that you wrote over the years, like you must have, you know, brought in new ideas and new, you know, what's going on in Rwanda or like stuff that you're learning, just living in the world, leaving Australia, going to the States, going to LA. I mean, it must have evolved so much like over the course of, of many drafts. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, yeah, by the time I came up with it, it was just cool. It was a cool idea, I thought, you know, and it'd be cool action and cool drama and cool tension, but it wasn't about anything. Um, it, what, it didn't really get to be about anything until, I mean, Rwanda, that genocide happened in 94. Um, you know, so, and I, I, I'd been living in LA since 92. So it was probably in those, you know, three or four or five years there, early to mid 90s, where I was really starting to just kind of get really disgusted uh, by the lack of value of human life. And so it just kind of started seeping in to this story is every time I bring it out of my, my desk drawer, I'd rewrite it. And so these ideas just kind of kept creeping in. And then, uh, yeah, you're exactly right. The more you live, the more you find you have something to say. And that's what it ends up coming about. That, that was my thing to say for that film. 
Well, I think it's great that you just kept honing it and honing yeah. it and rewriting it and putting more of yourself and your experiences into it because yeah. it, it shows. Yeah. To the to the point that it's like if you break one part of this thing, because I've been like, you know, that there's that whole thing like steel sharp and steel, you know, like a couple of my really good friends who are writers, they love reading the other one's work when it's great because they're like, God damn, this was good. I, mean, I got to get better. Like, you know, you try and put more of yourself in the work and you're like, oh, this is so good. And, that, you know, and so you have to keep trying, but it's so good that like that, that that's a testament to just how strong and cohesive the whole theme is. Not only the action and the beats, but the actual, the, the essence of the film is that like, you can't break it now because it's, it has, a, its theme is so interconnected with all the action and all the stuff that's happening that you can't, if you take one part of it away, it doesn't, it doesn't land like it should. Right, exactly. And I think that really comes from uh, getting clear and making things simple. Um, you know, the, the clearer you can get, the simpler you can make something, the clearer it is. And that's where you get your power from uh, as a storyteller. And it's really hard to make things simple. Um, but I think all the best stories uh, are simple and and as a result have a really clear uh, voice and a really clear idea of what it is. You know, it's not trying to be everything. It's trying to be one thing and, and be that one thing well. Indeed. So, um, it, gets, so it gets made. Mm-hmm. How much are you, yeah. are you, are you around LA when it's shooting? Obviously they did like relentless night shoots for months, right? So you're around when it's getting made. Um, what was that experience like? You obviously get to work closely with Michael Mann and in one of the rare films that he picks up someone else's script. I think it's a testament to your work. Like he picks up someone else's script and basically shoots it, you know, <laughs> like it adds some of the man flavor and the man themes, but clearly just shoots it. So what was that like for you? I mean, you're a young guy and. And then this leapfrogs you into a whole bunch of other things. But like, what was that like? Yeah, it was wild. Um, but yeah, it, it's the only script that he's directed that he hasn't written. Yes. Uh, so yeah, uh, it was it was like the greatest film school in the world, you know, and seeing these big movie stars saying your lines and seeing this, you know legendary director and you know direct scenes. Um, I was the most hated person on that set because. <laughs> Four months of night, <laughs> and they're like, "You couldn't have written a day scene." <laughs> oh, I didn't even think of that. The crew members are like, "Stewart." <laughs> there's a there's a whole bunch of grips and stuff that are just like, "Screw this guy! I don't care how good this movie's gonna be. I'm tired. I want to see my family." All right, I'd walk off at like midnight. Go, well, I'm gonna go get some sleep. Maybe like you bastard. Um, like, bring us donuts. <laughs> but it was wild. You know, I, I remember the first time meeting Tom on it. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to, uh, I, I wanted to go up and say thank you so much for doing this and everything before I got a word out. He was like, thank you so much for writing the script, you know. And, and you know, he just has that ability to make you just feel like the most important person in the world, you know, uh, the way he just, you know, treats you. And, yeah, he was just, just lovely. Um, so it just, it just was awesome. I remember the first time I, I think it was a nightclub scene, um, where you really see him charging. You know, he's doing that Tom Cruise thing where he's, he's got that righteous look in his eye and he's coming, you know, and it's, you know, he, he always does it as a hero and you're cheering, but it was the first time I'd actually seen him do it as a villain where he was going to kill someone, you know, for bad reasons. 
and it was absolutely chilling. And um, it just uh, it stuck with me. And I was like, oh, this is going to be really cool. That that was the moment I knew that he he was going to do something really special with it, and it was going to be something to remember. Um, but yeah, just it got just a wild ride. I mean, you know, I've often said like my real film school was yeah being on set with Michael and Jim and Bad Love and and uh, Steve Summers and you know all these incredible directors um, directing my my scripts. You know, it, it just was the greatest gift, and I learned so much from uh, all, all those wonderful people um, that I worked with. And uh, yeah, it was it was like a great wave that I was surfing, you know, for God, seven or eight years. Uh, it was just awesome. I, like, I, I didn't want to get off it. <laughs> I, can, I can understand oh, why. Absolutely. There's a great line that, Jack, well, there's a great moment you talked about Tom Cruise charging but being a villain. And I just, I love Max being Vincent. I love oh. that so much, Stuart, that, that when he adopts it and then there's a moment where he's really unsure of himself and then he turns on the Vincent, starts to mimic all of the stuff that he's been, you know, like a sponge absorbing in this cab ride. And then he turns it on and he makes them believe that he's Vincent. And then they just like all these really hard cartel. There probably some guys were probably cartels knowing Michael Mann's filmmaking style, you know, like a couple of guys are probably from the cartel or, you know, advisors or whatever. And he's there and he flips that around. And I just think it's just, yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's to that thing that I imagine that in those moments you're like, okay, this is really, it's not just the, it's not just the cruise. It's the, the Jamie Foxx of it all. He's so, and, and he was, again, this is one of those weird ones where Tom Cruise seems like out of favor with Hollywood. So doesn't get a nomination, but Jamie does. And I think Jamie totally deserved it. And the, the movie deserved all the accolades. It was, it was terrific. And it still is. That's why we're still talking about it. Little dead people. Yeah. Culiacán or Cartagena. But he don't meet you. Okay. Now you're here. Why? I lost my stuff. To listen. I want you to listen to me real well. Special groups put together the list of dedos. Dedos. Fingers, informants. Huh? Signal interceptions with voice recognition software, surveillance, a, a very expensive counterintelligence. Worked up that list. An important list, wouldn't you say? And you lost it? Sorry, sorry, that's not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Do you believe in Humpty Dumpty? No. Do you believe in Santa Claus? No. Nor do I. Nor do I, but my children do, they're still small. But do you know who they like even better? Than As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Santa Claus, his helper. Pedro el Negro. Black Peter. Yeah. There's an old Mexican tale that tells of how Santa Claus got so very busy looking out for the good children that he had to hire some help to look out for the bad children. So he hired Pedro. And Santa Claus gave him a list with all the names of all the bad children. And Pedro would come every night to check them out. And the people, the little kids that were misbehaving, that were not saying their prayers, Pedro would leave a little toy donkey on their windows, a little burro. And he would come back. And if the children were still misbehaving, Pedro would take them away and nobody would ever see them again. Now, if I am being Santa Claus and you are Pedro, how do you think jolly old Santa Claus would feel if one day Pedro came into his office and said, I lost the list? How fucking furious do you think he would get? Tell me, Vincent. Tell me what you think. What? I, th- I think. I think you should tell the guy behind me to put that gun down. What did you say? I said, I think you should tell the guy behind me to put his gun away before I take it and beat his bitch ass to death with it. Federal? I don't know. You tell me. That's why I tossed the list. The workups, all of that shit. To protect, in part, your Hermes Fasonabla ass. What do you think I like coming in here? But hey, shit happens. Gotta roll with it. Adapt. Darwin. I Ching. The fat man, the penthouse guy, the jazz man. That leaves two. Can you finish? In six years. Whatever I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, it's such a great moment and yeah.
Jamie just nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. You know, um, didn't know if he could do it, went in, did it, and we we're like, oh man, this was awesome. You know, when you just you see it in the eyes, you know, uh, yeah, I, I love that scene too. Uh, and you see that, of course, Javier is telling that as much as Jamie's telling that. And yeah. uh, he was terrific in that too, that scene. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of fun. <laughs> a lot of fun to watch. I have a question because um, we've heard that Michael makes these huge dossiers on the characters mm. that is on their their background. So it's like Vincent is from the Midwest. He was an orphan. He was in this orphanage. He did this, that, the, you know, he has all the background details for the character. He's living in Southeast Asia. He's getting his suits made in Southeast Asia because they're not quite perfect, but they're designer knockoffs and you know, those sorts of things. Yeah. Did you guys ever talk about that? Were you ever like, no, that's not quite what I thought or, <laughs> or yeah, nailed it. Or like, whatever, it doesn't matter. You're Michael Mann, you're shooting my movie. Like, what was your reaction? Yeah. <laughs> we spoke a little bit about that, not in that kind of detail. Um, I know, I know he'd like to do that. He does that more just for his own edification than anything else. It's not, you know, uh, something that comes out in dialogue or anything. Um, but no, we spoke a lot in depth about the character, what kind of person this was, where he would have come from, how he could have gotten to this point. Um, for me, it's more about, it's more, it's always more interesting why someone does something than what they do. So I'm always looking for, okay, well, where, where did things break, uh, mentally and emotionally for someone like Vincent, where his, 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 his moral line, you know, all our moral lines are kind of somewhat in the middle, you know, and we all, I think most of us think killing another innocent person is wrong. So somewhere, you know, his moral line has moved on the other side of that. Uh, when did that happen? Why did that happen? How has he rationalized killing people as a way of life? That to me was, was really what I was, uh, most concerned about and most, you know, interested in, in, in figuring that out. So we did a lot of work on that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I didn't really care if he was in Asia or some time or something. Uh, what happened in Asia? You know, that's where yes. the break happened. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, like wh what made him this way or like allowed him to like build his moral code? Like as Jamie said, Max says, you know, that there are pieces in you that are not present in other people that aren't in you. You know, that, that idea that something in you deep inside is broken. What was that? You know, so... Yeah. Uh, and again, I mean, like, we never answer it deliberately because, you know, you don't need to answer every question, you know. And sometimes it's better to let people wonder I and mean, make come to their own conclusions. But, yeah, it was important for us to know, important for Tom to know. And, uh, yeah, it, it's so much fun doing that kind of work because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the playground, you know, and you, you've got this great actor and, you know, it's like just creating stuff. That, you know, so great. Right, right. The job, the job of a writer is really non-glamorous 99% of the time but that one of the time that's really glamorous it's, you know <laughs> you're hanging up through you know creating a character together and you're like yeah this is pretty awesome <laughs> and tom's like what would vincent have done in this situation and you're like oh i got it tom i'll let you know <laughs> amazing cool. so when the movie when the movie's received obviously it's it goes gangbusters how was that for you like obviously um, I think regardless of whether, um, it was great, which it is, it was going to get a lot of attention. It's a Michael Mann movie. It's his first movie that he hasn't had a hand in writing, if not individually completely wrote himself. It's 
got Jamie Foxx in it, who's, you know, a hot commodity at the time. It's got Tom Cruise as a villain. How gratifying was it to see that it was, like, extremely well-received when it came out? Uh, look, it was wonderful. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, as, as something that I had this idea for when I was, you know, 17, you know, who the hell was I, right? To see it be received all over the world, you know, uh, so positively was just really validation more than anything else. It was the thing that kind of made me understand that I have good ideas, you know, that I can do this. <laughs> or that, you know, I, I can actually do this for a living, but, you know, uh, I have a future. So it was, it was enormous uh, for me. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget it. I can't imagine the first time you probably saw it in a theater. What, like, this has come to life. It's on the big screen now. <laughs> There's a full yeah. circle moment. Yeah. Uh, I obviously saw like the earlier cuts and stuff um, in the screening rooms and things like that. Um, and it was funny because um, in the scene where, um, they crashed the cab in the big wide when that cab comes to an end. There's a building in the background. And ironically, um, that building in real life had a gigantic poster covering the entire building for parts of the Caribbean. And I was like, oh, that's a really cool little thing, isn't it? But they, <laughs> Disney and, and not DreamWorks. Um, but there were lots of little little moments like that. There were, <laughs> uh, it was just so cool to see, uh, you know, in in the in the original cut, and especially the the, the one scene that he cut, um, which I'll never understand why. But this is the scene where they talk about what collateral is. Um, that was the beautiful little scene uh, between the the two of them. But uh, yeah, it's great to see it. So uh, didn't make the, the theatrical cut, unfortunately. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. I'm so glad you preemptively answered it. Cause I'm like, we, we, for Miami Vice, which Katie and I are like the champions of, there's like whole scenes, sequences, stories, stuff that our, uh, some of our followers and fans have like sent us, like this was in a, this was in a TV clip. This was here. We've heard from the people who edited the film and also like cut it. There's like big parts of it that didn't come in and then they eventually came back. Some of them in the director's cut, but collateral's always been that one where like nothing really hit the cutting room floor in a massive way. Yeah. Well, it's a very tight story. Yeah. Also one. It's really like this very simple story, complex characters, simple story. Um, but yeah, so the one scene that, that we cut was, at a gas station, they were, you know, they got to fill up the car, right? <laughs> you never see them fill up the car. Um, so they're at a gas station and it was um, Max asking Vincent how many people he's killed. And Vincent says something like, uh, I guess the exact line, but it was like, oh, 43 kills and uh, two collateral. And and Jamie and Max is like, what, what's a collateral? And um, Vincent says, oh, you know, innocent bystander types, people in the wrong place at the wrong time. And um, it says it very flippantly. And so Max says, uh, does that, does that bother you? You know, um, having to do that. And Vincent's like, oh, God, yeah, of course it bothers me. I mean, nobody likes working free. Oh, my God. <laughs> Interesting insight into the way Vincent thinks about it, you know. And I think that's, again, getting to the why of it. Uh, why he's doing what he's doing that really to me spoke to the why of it in a really cool interesting way yeah that's intense that's dark 
That's yeah. dark. That's like a little bit even darker than some of the stuff that happens in the rest of the movie. That's maybe I the know. darkest thing. That's amazing. Yeah, but that's that's how he values human life. It's absolutely, you know, meaningless. So, Stuart, I have to ask you because this is one thing that our fans have asked us um, in our chats and things like that with them. It feels like this movie, in a world where everyone's always looking for IP, it feels like collateral. Although it's like this beautiful individual wanna, it feels like there is a dark version of collateral that, like, um, uh, Fanning talks about, which is like in the Bay Area. It's a, it's in San Francisco. There's like another thing that happens and the cabbie dies and Vincent just rolls on to the next gig. And it feels like there is a template that you've created that is really exciting. And so I have to ask you, I'm like, surely in amongst your incredible writing, you've maybe written a couple of page treatment of like, is there another night that we could go and see what Vincent was up to? Because we see him meet his demise in Collateral but I just wonder if you've ever just like as a thought exercise gone, you know what, this might be fun to tinker with, you know, like uh, what, what, what did, what was Vincent doing in the Bay area? I've thought about it. Um, you know, you could do it. I mean, Tom Cruise looks younger today than he did back then. <laughs> he actually just needs to less gray cause he could maybe grow gray hair. Who knows? <laughs> I had less makeup. Um, yeah, look, uh, yeah, I mean, that was always just like, you know, uh, a little tip that I threw in there just to say, hey, yeah, this might have happened before, you know, it's not the first time he's done this. Um, yeah, look, I mean, to me, I think if, if, if I was going to explore collateral again, I would, I would do it, you know, uh, present day with, you know, maybe Vincent's son or something, some connection to it that way. Uh, being a hitman or something like that, you know, uh, just the, the world and life of the hitman, I think it's, it's really, really fascinating because it's, it's life, it's, death is a way of life. Um, and yeah, you get into a lot of the same ideas, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I could, I do, I wouldn't want to do a prequel and have some other actor playing Vincent. Like, you know, Tom owns that character so much that, you know, it feels like, ah, you know, <laughs> how could anyone, you know, capture that? How can anyone else capture that? So. Yeah, I, I think if, it, if I'm ever going to get into it again, it's going to be through some something in the present, some relative of his somehow, or somebody trained under him or something like that. Uh, well, getting well into may, maybe, you know, we've just talked about it. I'm just going to pitch it to you right now. It's Maybe it's Russell, maybe it's Russell Crowe in another big city. <laughs> he, he and Vincent knew each other, and it's just, the, and you get the chance to go dark. You're like, Russell... What if we did another kind of collateral, right? You're another hitman. We just, you know, it's in the same universe, has the same MO, learnt from a guy in LA who did it and failed, but I'm going to succeed. I don't know. I'm Maybe. just throwing it out there. It was the guy who did it in San Fran. Yeah. And Vincent. Vincent copied oh, Yeah. See, you're the screenwriter here, man. You're, you're the guy. You're the guy. That's that's the best idea. Okay, cool. Idea, so, man. So just as long as our fans know that we did actually ask Stuart about the San Francisco Bay Area killings, Katie. That's one thing I we've we've got a little Discord with our fans of the show, Stuart. So they're very keen on like asking um, these sorts of questions. So I thought, well, while I've got you, I must ask. Well, I do want to ask about two internet fan theories that are kind of memes. Oh, yes, yes, of course. <laughs> the first one is, and I saw that Louis Leterrier, actually the director of Transporter, he said that this is true when Jason Statham hands off the briefcase, is that 
Frank Martin the transporter. Absolutely, Frank Martin the transporter. <laughs> yes! <laughs> the it's best. It's canon. It's canon. I asked, I asked Jason about that book. Um, yeah, it's absolutely. Yep, it's canon. Same world. <laughs> I am so happy right now. <laughs> Because okay, that's so, such a sorry, sorry. Just to say, no, no, we have to land on this. Yes, that's such an amazing scene too, because it just happens. And for folk who are like cinephiles or whatever, who'd like been right into Guy Ritchie stuff and things like that early on, early adopters, people, you know, Satan was less known than he was about to be catapulted into kind of superstardom and be the guy that he is today. That's just such like ten seconds shot basically at LAX kind of illegally without permits and it's him and Tom Cruise just bombing around in like the lobby and then like, they walk out and it's like, it's amazing. It's an amazing scene. <laughs> yeah. And look, you know, the studio will never admit to that. But uh, yes, in book, in my head, absolutely. It's him. Yes. I, and also like, I mean, this cast is so great. Like, I mean, just going on a tangent, like Mark Ruffalo, Javier Bardem, mm. Jason Satham is like all before they kind of really hit big so it must have been really fun to see them working i mean you know before they were huge stars yeah yeah it's been great to see what mark's done i mean he was this little independent movie actor you know at the time and a great actor and we're like oh this is fantastic this great actor playing a cop in the michael mann movie and then of course now he's the hulk you know marvel yeah. <laughs> superhero and jason of course has gone up and done all his film um and yeah, Javier actually I knew of because I, I'd seen this film called The Starters that he'd done that I just thought was brilliant. Um, so I knew him and I, I knew he was fantastic. And uh, I was just super stoked when uh, they announced him. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, and and you know, these, a lot of these people had just one thing really <laughs> to land, you know. Um, and they, you know, there's a lot of one scene characters. And Barry Henley. Is our probably favorite yep. scene in the movie. I mean, he just crushes that scene. That's that's right. one, of, one of your best. Again, in a movie, we've probably talked about your best scene eight times. I think that that's one right. of the other ones um, that's the best. <laughs> um, I was actually uh, inspired by that great scene with Christopher Walken in True Romance with Dennis Hopper. That was the scene. I just watched that again and again and again and again and again to understand the rhythms of it and the textures of it and everything. And so that jazz club scene really came from that scene in Girona, which I love. Amazing. Uh, Great tidbit. Now, Katie, this is the- Okay, second, think... second fan theory. <laughs> there is a meme going around on Twitter that Vincent's last name is Collateral. <laughs> that his full name is Vincent Collateral. <laughs> Have, you not seen that, Have you not seen that, Stuart? No, it is- uh, and at all. Vincent isn't even his real name. <laughs> oh. oh, that's even better. That's even better. So you know he what? Is, can we, can we just say no th- name. Can we just say that his fake name is Vincent Collateral, please? <laughs> <laughs> in the corners of Michael Mann Twitter, in which Blake and I are ensconced, <laughs> The there these are the things we talk about. We just <laughs> saw we just saw someone do that one day, and we both laughed and thought, "Huh." And then, like six months later, the same tweet just keeps appearing, like screenshots. Remember, 
when this bombshell dropped and we're like, this is so ridiculous, patently ridiculous, but we're lucky enough to talk to people like you where we can actually validate it and do some form of journalism, I guess. I yeah, guess. so we can ask the acclaimed screenwriter if this is collateral based off a joke that we saw on Twitter. <laughs> journalism <laughs> uh, that's uh, that's the only kind of journalism i want to do um so uh i mean it's it's amazing to talk to you this has been such a wonderful chat i mean we could probably talk for another hour about 310 to yumo if we really went down um congratulations you've got obi-wan kenobi back there you made your own 90s action thriller interceptor but you made it in 2022 this year so congratulations on all that it's been a it's been a real treat talking to you Stuart. just thank you so much coming onto the show it's it's uh it's this is wild for us and uh and for us to know that it is definitive that it is the transporter that's uh that's a big that's a big one um but uh, and to know that vincent's not his real name another big one breaking news breaking news yeah. and the coyote is not wily coyote it's a complete unrelated <laughs> <laughs> that's good not to that's be confused good. with wily the only other famous coyote <laughs> Actually, it's funny, you know, because that um, that was one of those moments where it's just it's this magical moment, and um, and it happened to me about a week after. It had never happened to me before, but about a week after I saw the film, I was driving up along Mulholland. Cody came out, stopped, looked at me. I stopped the car. We looked at each other, and it was the exact same thing. And I was like, "Wow, that is spooky. That is that's that's, right. This happened." That's I was like, "Wow, really weird." <laughs> so uh it does happen uh in LA <laughs> and I can attest to it personally I'm just doing my like woo woo thing now but I'm just like all of this was meant to be like you yes. persevered you were a teenager you fought through it like you demanded a meeting at DreamWorks like and then the coyote came out and said you did good kid I love it. Talking to you guys too. Thanks so much for having me on. Hi, this is Blake Howard, host and producer of One Heat Minute Productions podcast. We dive into the great and underappreciated cinematic works, often one minute or one scene at a time. Our crew of guests are some of the most wonderful filmmakers, writers, authors, and critics ever assembled. Our shows include One Heat Minute, Josie and the Podcats, All the President's Minutes, Increment Vice, and right now, Zodiac Chronicle. Check out oneheatminute.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.